Welcome to Ask the Expert, a brief, informative, and lively discussion with experts in type 1 diabetes and related interdisciplinary research. We're recording this event. We're going to post it on the Sugar Science YouTube website shortly after presentation. And if you have any questions, feel free to raise your hand in the context of the talk or at the end, we'll uh, take questions as we can. Um, and today we have the distinct pleasure of having Dr. Emma Hamilton Williams from the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia. And the title of her talk is Targeting the Gut Microbiota, a New Therapy for T1D? Question mark. And she is come, uh, as I said, she's coming to us from the University of Queensland, where she's an associate professor. Her career is focusing on understanding how immune tolerance is disrupted, leading to the development of type 1 diabetes. And she received her PhD from the Australian National University in 2001. Then she trained as a postdoctoral fellow in Scripps in San Diego. And in 2012, she started her own laboratory at the University of Queensland's uh, Diamantia Institute, founded by a career development fellowship from JDRF. That's awesome. Great. Um, and then she's currently an associate professor. Her lab's now focusing on understanding the role of the gut microbiota as a potential trigger for therapy uh, or therapy for T1D, as well as developing an antigen-specific immunotherapy for T1D. Um, very hot topic right now, um, how the microbiota interacts in this uh, autoimmune disease, type 1 diabetes. She's recently conducted a clinical trial of micro, uh, microbiome targeting dietary supplement aimed at restoring a healthy microbiome and immune tolerance with an ultimate aim of preventing type 1 diabetes. So she has uh, at her disposal state-of-the-art protein sequencing and techniques uh, to probe how disturbances in the gut uh, microbiota impacts the function of the gut and the pancreas. She's using, um, in her lab, she's using nanoparticle technology to develop and deliver an immunotherapy that specifically tolerizes the immune cells that cause type one, and she's working towards a first in human approach. So welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. And um, I just wanted to, you know, say that we've, um, you know, we're really interested in this approach. I, you know, we've had uh, Graciela Lorca from Miami, um, as well as um, yourself. And it just seems like this whole um, part of the field is really blowing up. People have a lot of interest in it. Yeah, great. Well, thanks for the introduction. That was very kind. All right. Okay, so I'll get started then. So yeah, so we're here in Brisbane. Uh, it's summer and incredibly hot today. So uh, it would be lovely to be over there in the US where it may be a bit cooler right now. Um, so yeah, I'll just get straight into it. So um, as uh, Monica introduced, I'm really interested in how the gut microbiota might be playing a role in type 1 diabetes. Uh, whether it could be in a part of the triggering of the disease process, um, whether it's a way that we could help to maybe um, reverse some of the increase in um, incidence that we're seeing in type 1 diabetes, or potentially something that could help to regulate glucose control after disease onset. So what's been really, um, I guess, characterized in a lot of studies at the moment is that there are changes in the gut bacteria uh, associated with type 1 diabetes. Uh, and one of the most consistent findings um, that's reported is that there's a reduction in bacteria that produce short-chain fatty acids. So short-chain fatty acids produced after we eat dietary fiber, and then there are particular bacteria, mostly in the colon, that ferment the dietary fiber um, and produce these short-chain fatty acids. And the most abundant ones are acetate, butyrate, and propionate. 
So these um, metabolites produced by the bacteria have many beneficial um, effects on the host. So they are there as an energy source um, for the epithelial cells and the intestine. They're helping to um, promote a healthy gut mucosal barrier, but they also uh, can cross systemically um, into the body. They improve where they can uh, improve immune function. They can reduce inflammation. They can increase regulatory T cells. And then they also have more metabolic effects on appetite, glucose uptake and insulin resistance. So they have quite a wide range of effects. But then, yeah, the... The really um, biggest study of the of dysbiosis in the gut microbiota was the Teddy study, and, and their main finding was that there was this reduction um, in bacteria and T1D in, in children before disease onset uh, or after uh, bacteria producing short-chain fatty acids are reduced. So the approach that we wanted to take then is can we try to uh, replace, so can we either promote the bacteria, expand the bacteria that produce the short-chain fatty acids, or can we bypass that directly and just deliver the short-chain fatty acids? So the approach is considered a prebiotic. So we're giving a food for the bacteria that we want to expand, but this fiber that we're using is also modified. So it has acetate and butyrate attached to it. So it's a, a resistant starch, a maize starch backbone, and then there's a, um, it's either has attached to it acetate or butyrate or both together. So this was originally trialed by uh, the, my collaborator on the study, Eliana Marino, in, in a nod mouse study. Um, and they used these diets in mice and they found that uh, this is the black line is the normal, normal chow, that if you fed these mice uh, the hams diet that has both the acetate and butyrate together, they were almost completely protected from disease. This has gone a bit backwards. So this was also, so they found changes in the gut microbiota in the mice, but they also found uh, that there was immune modulation. So uh, after feeding of these two different diets, they found increased regulatory T cells and they found a decrease uh, in islet-specific effector T cell proliferation. And they also found modulation of antigen-presenting cells, in particular reduced costimulatory CD86 on B cells. So we wanted now to try to now progress this to human and find out um, is this type of a, approach of a short-chain fatty acid yielding diet a potential therapy for T1D. So the idea is that this type of dietary approach is extremely um, safe. It's something that parents of young children, uh, that there's a lot of interest in in the field and, and it's something that really could be potentially used even in young children that are at risk of T1D or um, um, at early onset. So it's, you know, it's not something that's going to be, you know, really um, having a dramatic effect on immune function. So it's quite a, a palatable approach from that point of view. So what we wanted to do, first of all, is just to find out if, if this would be um, safe to do in people with type 1 diabetes. So we did it in adults with T1D. It was a single arm trial. Um, so the subjects took the starch as part of their normal diet for six weeks and then there was a follow-up at 12 weeks. So the primary objective was just to determine the feasibility, the safety and tolerability of, of this diet. Um, was there any adverse effect on glucose control that would be an impediment and um, could they take this much of the fiber in their diet um, without any 
gastrointestinal effects and the like. Um, and then we had a range of exploratory objectives where we wanted to look at glycemic control, the short chain fatty acid delivery, the microbiota composition and immune tolerance. Um, so it was safe and tolerable. So just to go over again what, what they did. So they took this HAMS-AB um, resistant starch. It's a white powder. They added it to their food um, for six weeks, 20 grams in the morning and evening, um, just adding it to their normal food. In the first week, they got to ramp up the dose to try and acclimatise to it. And if they wanted to, they could drop down to a lower dose or stay on a half dose if they couldn't tolerate the 40 grams a day. So we had 21 participants that started the trial and three withdrew during the trial. So one was due to the supplement taste and uh, the trial protocol, the blood draws, one um, prior to commencing for reason unknown and one was lost to follow up. So that led, left us with 18 participants that completed the study and the diet. So 17 um, of those stayed on the full 40 grams a day dose for the six weeks and one dropped down to the half dose because of some mild gastrointestinal side effects that resolved on the lower dose. So that was really promising that actually it was highly feasible to take this dose of fibre um, over the six weeks. And as far as their diabetes control, there were no significant changes from baseline and the HB1A1C, the insulin dose or their glucose control as we had them on CGMs for some of the time as well. So that was, um, that was great. So it was safe and it was tolerable and feasible to take this amount of fibre in the diet. So then um, getting on more to, the, to what actually happened uh, metabolically uh, and in the microbiome. So the, the thing that we really wanted to know is do we actually increase the short-chain short fatty acids? So excitingly, we looked in both in the stool and in the plasma, we found that um, acetate and butyrate and propionate actually all increase at six weeks. Uh, both in the stool and the plasma, and even actually at the follow-up time point of 12 weeks, so six weeks after they stopped taking the fibre, they actually still had elevated short-chain fatty acids um, in a number of the participants. Uh, so that was quite interesting that there was actually some kind of a sustained effect after they came off the diet. Um, some other, other things of interest to note, so these lines are all the individual participants. So there is variability between subjects, of course, particularly we saw in the plasma acetate. So acetate is the, um, the short-chain fatty acids that tends to go systemically at much higher levels than the others. So you can see these numbers are very high here. So some subjects go very high in the plasma with the acetates, but actually some stay very flat, even though they tend to all be um, increasing in the stool. So that was interesting that there is some um, individual variability happening here. So when we look, if I could just interject for one second, yeah. do you have any hypothesis? I mean, those are some really exciting results. Do you have any hypothesis yeah. about the acetate levels? Yeah. So our one one of our hypotheses. So as far as what's happening with the plasma acetate, one possibility is it's actually maybe something about leaky gut. So we know that some people with T1D have leaky gut. So is it just that those people actually have more leaky gut and therefore it's going crossing the barrier or it's something yeah something maybe fundamentally about either the clearance maybe through the liver so it could be kind of that first um first pass clearance could be different or the, the utilization most you know it's it's getting used a lot by the colon epithelial cells so it could be something kind of fundamentally different about the colon 
So we're investigating that at the moment using our proteomics approach, so our stool proteomics on these samples where we can measure a lot of the epithelial gut um, proteins that are being produced to try and look at this. So that data is still being analysed at the moment. So, yeah, we'll hopefully be able to work that out a little bit. Yeah, it looks like And also that. we're looking at how the microbiome may be different or the immune, you know, that what's, you know, maybe different between maybe responders or non-responders as well, we're looking into. Yeah, so um, then we, uh, we did uh, metagenomics on the stool to look at the changes in the microbiota composition and also the function across time. So we found really a pretty dramatic change in the microbiota. So this is a supervised PLSDA approach. So it is supervised, but we found in our permanova, we have a very highly significant difference um, at six weeks. So the orange is the baseline, blue is six weeks, and then red is 12 weeks. So the six weeks is very significantly different from both baseline and 12 weeks. Baseline and 12 weeks can be separated here, on the, but it's not significantly different between those two time points. So there's really a, a big shift at six weeks and then mostly a return to baseline or similar to baseline at 12 weeks. And then if we look at the individual um, taxa that we're contributing to the differences, I just need to move. This is amazing. Forward. I mean, <laughs> you know, the, the B adolescentus is usually it's just, uh, um, I've read, you know, quite a bit that it's, it's gone at onset. And then you've got, you know, the recovery and then this other bifidobacteria recovering. Mm -hmm. this is yeah. So the bifido really we're, we're excited. So the bifido, it, um, it slightly increases at six weeks and then tends to drop at 12 weeks. So it's kind of like when you come off, they, they don't like it going away, but the biggest increases in the parabacteroides and that's something that's quite consistent and other studies that deliver resistant starches, other or um, the HAMS B was used before in healthy adults. So this is a common response to resistant starch, increasing parabacterioides. So then we had, yeah, some increases in some bacterioides and the changes in the bifidobacterium. We think that, you know, this responder, non-responder may also be splitting a little bit on the bifidobacterium or the, yeah, some of the kind of healthy bacteria. So yeah, there were qu quite a lot of changes in the taxa. Um, and then if we looked, where are we, at the functions, um, we saw even more changes in the function. So there were 48 um, metabolic pathways that were changed at six weeks again. So again, um, the six-week change was, um, but at 12 weeks, the function tended to go back to baseline again. And some of the main changes were um, increase in glycolysis, uh, and the fermentation increase was homolactic fermentation increases at six weeks. And then at 12 weeks, they tend to go back to the butyrate production. The butanoate uh, goes up at 12 weeks. And then there's um, carbohydrate degradation is decreased. And then there's a lot of increase in amino acid uh, biosynthesis. And there was also uh, B vitamins in particular. So cofactor vitamin biosynthesis increases at six weeks. So a lot of changes in the functional potential of the microbiota as well. Did, um, can I just ask, did you see any changes? So some bacteria uh, manufacture the precursors for neurotransmitters or even like serotonin, right? In the, in yeah. So those are those, those actually those vitamin um, biosynthesis B vitamin biosynthesis so they are the precursors for these yeah for the cofactors vitamin b -synthesis. and so they did a really nice recovery there yeah yeah, yeah very much so um That's so curious right, yeah 
yes, so the B vitamins have some interesting correlations that we'll come back to and come to in a second as well. So that's quite interesting. So it, it seemed that there was a bit of a switch in the function. So the bacteria are maybe utilizing the short chain fatty acids um, a lot at the six weeks, and then at 12 weeks they go back to producing it themselves again. So there's maybe a, a functional shift there. Um, okay, so then we, um, I'm an immunologist and we really wanted to know what was happening to the immune system. So we used um, a mass cytometry panel to analyze the PBMCs across time um, in the subjects. So it was a 38 marker panel looking at major antigen presenting cells, T and B cells, um, inhibitory molecules, uh, um, and co-stimulatory molecules, things like that. Um, now, curiously, it's a little bit of a different pattern now. So in the immune profile in the PBMCs, actually the biggest change was actually at 12 weeks rather than six weeks. So there's mm. a bit of a change at six weeks, but the most significant is at 12 weeks. So potential, So we don't, we can't really say is that potentially it's a delayed time, a delayed response that it takes a bit longer for the immune system to change or it's something about the bounce, bounce back that we obviously really need a placebo-controlled trial to, to look at that or as far as what that timing means. But what we found then um, were a lot of significant changes at 12 weeks and some changes also at six weeks. So we found a change in the composition of the T cells. So we tend to see uh, a drop in the, um, in the central memory and a drop in the naive and an increase in effective memory populations across the T cells. We tend to see an increase in B cell populations overall and a decrease in the antigen presenting cells, so monocytes and dendritic cells. And then if we look at the marker expression on those cells, then we can see some interesting patterns as well. So on the, on the T cells, we see uh, tend to see an increase in TIGIT and an increase in CTLA-4. So those are two really well-known immunoregulatory markers. So CTLA-4 is often expressed on Tregs and TIGIT, on dysfunctional exhausted T cells, things like that. Yeah. Um, but then on the antigen-presenting cells, so both on the B cells and some of the DCs, we saw a decrease in CD86 uh, um, intensity, uh, which was very exciting because that was also something we directly found, uh, was directly found in the mice as well. So then that's, you know, a decrease. And in again, this is, this is in human. This is the yeah, this these is data you're showing. This is human. The, yeah. human and that was um, seen to start at six weeks and then continue at 12 weeks. Uh, and then also CD86 and CTLA-4 functionally interact with each other. So, you know, they, they are a ligand pair. So the CD86, uh, the CTLA-4 helps to outcompete for the, the CD86 binding to so the T cells aren't as activated. So this was consistent so maybe, uh, maybe uh, increasing a more of a regulatory phenotype of the cells. So what's yeah. Really, yeah, I mean, it really suggests that, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's from the populations, it's a little harder to say because, you know, well, we're decreasing central memory, but we're increasing effective memory. Um, but then the, the Tregs also have the same pattern. So we see this... Um, change in the, the, the we don't have more Tregs but we have you know a change in their phenotype so right. then also also in the markers here you know this Tiget is higher on the Tregs for example um, but then yeah. also on the cytotoxic T cells so we've got our granzyme B positive perforin positive T cells so they're for example increasing CTLA-4 
so yeah that's so quite um we think it's quite quite promising quite exciting that we really can see actually kind of a systemic remodeling of the immune response in a direction that we would be encouraged by for type 1 diabetes for sure yeah um, so then the next thing that we wanted to do was then we didn't see uh, to look at more at the clinical response and the glucose control. So as I mentioned before, we didn't see an overall change in the glucose control across time, but we wanted to then correlate um, with was the increase in short chain fatty acids or were the microbiota changes at all correlating um, with glucose control. So interestingly, then what we found was that particularly plasma butyrate, um, also a bit the stool acetate really um, had this inverse correlation with HbA1c uh, insulin dose or time below CGM target range. So this is so saying that when you have, for example, that can see here the individual graphs um, at six weeks, the butyrate increases and then the insulin dose decreases or the HbA1c decreases. So the higher the butyrate, the lower your insulin requirement or lower your HbA1c. So, and that, that was quite exciting. And then also it was more time below range. So suggesting maybe that not going so low, that was correlating. The plasma acetate, which had this different pattern and the responders and non-responders doesn't correlate. So it was more the butyrate seemed to be more important or the stool um, levels rather than the circulating, high circulating plasma acetate. Uh, then we could also look at the same, the correlating either our short-chain fatty acids or glucose control with all the different uh, taxa or bacterial pathways. Um, that gives us a very complicated heat map, I'm sorry, but the, the, um, the take-home or the most exciting part we thought was really down the bottom in this red square here where we have bifidobacterium longin and adolescentis, so they positively correlate with the higher butyrate in the stool and then have this inverse relationship with the daily insulin HbA1c. So then the, so the higher your bifidobacterium, then the lower your daily insulin is kind of, you can see the actual correlation plots here. Um, then there were some of the other taxes, so the B vitamins, so biotin biosynthesis um, clustered in there and one of these other um, pyrimidine pathways here as well. So this was really suggesting that we could see there are particular bacteria that maybe have a, um, a stronger correlation with better glucose control, uh, that the plasma acetate has a really strong correlation with glycolysis pathway. So it has a little bit of a different, also with the parabacteroides dysonus, which does also have that negative correlation with daily insulin as well. So yeah, uh, quite, quite exciting there to see, to give us some clues about, okay, which taxa may be the ones that we really need to find a fiber that can um, maybe target these ones a little bit more strongly and what's uh, the changes that we're seeing. So a lot of things still to investigate to follow up on this data. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's kind of like, this is just such a great observational study. I mean, you really, you really see some strong observations like, okay, now next steps, like what's the mechanism? <laughs> what's happening? Yes, exactly. And to, to really show with the placebo, it's, it's always, it's a little bit tricky. Uh, one of the reasons we designed it as single arm because in subjects with, uh, with type one diabetes, if we, give a placebo that's just a carbohydrate, then that could be problematic, you know, for their glucose management to not know that if it's blinded. So it's um, 
So we don't we we don't know, for example, if I go on to my conclusions, we don't know, um, you know, do is it just the the backbone resistant starch doing this? Do we actually need the acetate and butyrate? Certainly in the mouse study, you had to have the acetate and the butyrate as well and just go through. So what we found or our con could conclude was that yeah, the hands AB fiber was safe and tolerable in subjects with established T1D. And it um, seemed that there's a significant shift in the composition and function of the gut microbiota following um, taking this fiber. Uh, it mostly returns to baseline after the diet stop, but the, um, the short-chain fatty acid production actually remained stayed elevated even after the diet stopped. And then we could see this bifidobacterium abundance in particular correlates with this increased stool acetate and butyrate and better glucose control. And we could see a significant remodeling of the immune system. Um, after the after the diet to a more regulatory phenotype. So yeah, the um, this, the limitation obviously of our study is that it is a single arm study. So we don't know for sure that any of these effects are caused by the diet or just an association um, of being you know being in a clinical trial, being on a study. That we took um, we did diet surveys and things during the study and and. No one reported changing their diet during the study, but you know we don't know that for sure. So we really need to do next, um, obviously a, a placebo-controlled study. Um, yeah, but it's we think our study really supports that this further investigation and into delivery of short-chain fatty acids is definitely a potential. It could be something that's beneficial after diagnosis if it's really maybe helping to modulate the glucose control um, that kind of fiber effect may be helping to prevent the um, going low the time below target range but the immune modulation side we think really is an indication that this could be worth um, pursuing as far as prevention of, of looking at at-risk populations before disease yeah in the prodrome I mean yeah let's exhaust those t-cells <laughs> yeah exactly I think um, um I just think this is fantastic. Uh, I think it's a beautiful study. I know you keep going back to the fact it's like one arm, but I still, I mean, I just think it's, you've done some, some really quality um, capturing of, of which, which bacteria, which mic taxa, I guess you want to call it, were modulated um, mm -hmm. and, and what was the repercussion? I mean, to actually have people on the CDM and be able a CGM and to be able to actually look at their physiological responses in context of this is, is even just a further step. So I think it's beautiful. I wondered if you guys have considered if there's a window, you know, where this microbiome shifts during the prodrome. I mean, that's really like mm. a lot of the studies show like at diagnosis, there's been this shift of dramatic, dramatic, um, you know, decrease in diversity of the microbiome. But like, has anyone looked at during the prodrome or when someone yeah, has no, one biomarker? So they, they absolutely have. So, so certainly in the Teddy study, they did longitudinal analysis, but they didn't really report in that that there was a particular time prior to diagnosis that they see the see the changes in in the um, you know, in the function of the bacteria or the the taxa. Uh, there was a small study by Mikhail Knipp where they looked really from birth up until um, seroconversion and diagnosis, though it was pretty small. But there they really found that the change happened, 
between seroconversion and diagnosis. So up to seroconversion, they were similar. And then from seroconversion to, to diagnosis was when they tended to, they dropped in diversity or had these change in the microbiota function. So after that. the first autoantibody. So yeah. it, that, that's an interesting window for you, um, your team to maybe explore. Exactly. This, so, yeah, I, th- yeah. I, th- I think we're going to have to go to new onset next as that's, you know, that kind of, it's obviously a lot harder practically to go straight into um, into antibody positive children. But um, yeah, I think because it's such a safe, the idea that it is something that really could be used at that time, because it's, you know, it is just a dietary supplement, it's a fiber, it's something. Yeah, that, no, it sounds, you know, very non-invasive. And exactly that, I mean, that, how much of the starch of the hams sab did you have, did you have to, you know, add into whatever a drink or whatever it was the food they were eating yeah they were taking 40 grams a day so 20 20 grams in the morning and 20 in the evening they um so they had the option they could add it to food so it can be kind of mixed into you know like yogurt or pasta sauce or that type of thing or you can stir it into a drink so they tended to actually prefer to just add it to a drink so they just either put it in straight into water or like diet cordial something like that and they preferred to just try to to knock it back because adding it into into food they found um, it's a starch so it kind of made it more starchy or they thought it ruined the food somewhat to to mix that into it Um, so yeah that was 20 grams is not that much though for a substantial you know um yeah it's I mean it's a big increase in what people were generally taking and you know fiber per day but yeah it was, you know, they, they had that ramp up in the first week where they kind of ramp up a bit, um, a bit slowly and they tended to kind of about the first two weeks they would have um, reports, um, you know, getting used to the fibre, so kind of minor type gut issues that would um, resolve after a couple of yeah. weeks. I wonder if, um, you know, do you have any um, plans to do this type of study in the US or you're going to keep it going in Australia? What are, what are your thoughts for next steps? Yeah, so um, at the moment, so I'm, I'm looking at some other, other starches and other options. So I think that from our study, it would really seem that bifidobacteria are maybe the most important things to try to increase. So I think if we could maybe investigate other other types of starches that might be a little bit better at expanding those particular bacteria. Um, but so, so that we'll probably do locally, but we also then are looking at doing a new onset study. So that will be multi-center and could um, have, have international sites as well. Trial net. Depending on fire funding. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I would like to go to antibody positive, then it's most likely. Yeah, no, that'd be fantastic. I, I would like to open it up to the audience. I see a couple of people here. If you'd like to unmute yourself. I did want to just put out my acknowledgement slide as well. Oh, <laughs> yes, sure. Sorry. I want to thank everyone in my lab that was involved. So Bree Tillett um, was, was my postdoc that really did all the bioinformatics and the, the microbiome analysis and the correlations. But it was a really big team as well. So was a collaboration um, that JDRF was really um, fun, inst- helped in instigating this collaboration with Aliana, started it in Monash, and then Kirsty Bell um, ran the study, and Sonia in, in um, Sydney 
and Barbara and Helen did all the mass optometry and then Esteban was also involved over in Brussels now. Um, and Curtis and Kelsey helped with the bioinformatics as well. And of course the participants too. So thank you to all of those. We're going to share that with our audience. Yeah, yeah, I think this is such a promising study. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it really has so much promise. Uh, and I just can't wait to see what you do next with it. It's really mm. exciting. Yeah. yeah, we're excited. And and we still have, we're still looking at some further, um, as I was talking about before, further analysis with the samples from here. We're looking at the proteomics to really try and ask a bit more about the gut function as well. Is, is something that we're, we would really love to know if we have evidence of improved intestinal barrier function, for example. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yes. Um, okay. Again, I'll just, I'll make a shout out to the audience. Is anyone interested in um, asking uh, Dr. Hamilton Williams a question? Feel free. Oh, yes. Matthew, Matthew here. I will unmute you. I think. Oh, yeah. Go ahead, Matthew. Uh, great presentation. A really interesting study. On that last point, looking at assessing intestinal permeability, would you go into more detail on what you're planning on doing and how exactly you'll go about assessing that? Yeah, so in the study, so we haven't um, obviously had any direct measurement of intestinal permeability by the kind of gold standard methods of, um, you know, lactulose and ranulose, those kinds of things. So we're, we're doing it. By, um, by proteomics of stool. So we've done that before in type 1 diabetes where we could, you know, we can, by measuring shotgun proteomics of all of the proteins in stool, so we have all the human proteins and the microbiota and pancreas proteins, so there's quite a diverse pool there. But we can then look at things like our mucins and epithelial adherence and things like that uh, in the stool if they are changing. So uh, we're using that approach and we're trying, um, we're trying in, in some other samples we have where we have actual direct measurements of intestinal permeability to try to find out what are the best biomarkers from the stool proteins um, with kind of that classical, classical um, intestinal permeability measurement. But we can also see things like calprotectin, those kind of inflammation markers and neutrophil proteins that are all there in the proteome as well. So we're doing a lot of kind of networking and yeah, multi-omic analysis on that, yeah. So on, on the stool proteome, looking at human proteins, mm -hmm. presumably there'd be quite a few that are just part of the natural sort of shedding of the intestinal epithelium. Yeah. How would you yeah, differentiate between that sort of natural shedding? Yeah, and that, that, is, that is one of the problems. of. Um, so I, I think it's... I think the infl more inf inflammation. Um, so we, we do see a lot of kind of neutrophil-y type things. Um, so that's so there are there are clearly some things which are linked to more inflammatory type proteins. And so then we can see what's correlating there. But no, we never quite know. So if something is increased in stool, does that mean um, you know there's they're making more of it? So that you know if we see more mucin, is that because the mucin barrier is thicker or is it because it's being sloughed off and shed and it's actually thinner so yeah we it's it's hard to we can infer it but it's hard to know that directly in human studies at least so we can we can do it in mice and things like that but yeah so it's it's a lot about correlation networks so we, we there are obviously some quite 
clearly known inflammation markers in the IBD field. So we can kind of look at really what's clustering with those as well. That's a great question. Yeah. Yeah, it's challenging for sure. Well, you've made some great headway. Yeah. And um, with that in mind, with your time in mind, thank you so much for joining us. And we look forward to your next paper and hope everyone will be, you know, following along, listening to this while we post it on our, in our um, YouTube repository and reading your, your, um, your new and exciting paper. Thanks again and have a good rest of your day. No problem. Thanks for having me.